you for listening to this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The Garden Fellowship is a new and exciting church located in Burlington, North Carolina. And we invite you to learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org. Now, we invite you to worship God through the teaching of His Word. In the previous passage, we see, beginning from verse 20, we saw Jesus give this dual warning, a double warning. One warning was against those who would be sign seekers and um, are looking only for the return of Jesus or the Messiah in power and in might. And so Jesus addresses that question from the Pharisees by saying to them that the kingdom of God is not only something that's coming with power and might at some point in the future, but it's here right now. It's among you. It's in your midst. It's right here. The kingdom is here because the king is here. So don't be a sign seeker. Instead, be a Messiah follower. And then he goes on from that to give the second part of that warning, and that is to say don't, um, don't be one who misses the cataclysmic, climactical return, the revealing of the Son of Man um, when he comes back in glory and in power. Because there is coming that day, a day of great separation when the Son of Man will be revealed and he uh, returns our focus not only just on the glory of his return and his uh, grand coronation, but he also reminds us, um, as he mentions even then, that this will not happen until the Son of Man suffers greatly at the hands of people. And in fact, uh, uh, killed and um, bore in his soul and in his body the penalty for our sin, raised again from the dead. So these things won't happen until that happens. Returns our the focus there, uh, as if to say that the uh, revealing of the Son of Man will not be good news for those who have not embraced the cross and find the cross, the suffering Messiah, as precious. And then he goes on to the, from there to give some examples. He gives the examples in Noah's, Noah's day. He gives the examples in uh, the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, instead of being a sign seeker, there's no need to, to be all concerned about what signs are going to reveal the coming of the Son of Man it's because it's going to be so obvious. He compares it to this electrical storm. Nobody in the midst of an electrical storm needs to ask what's going on. It's pretty obvious. In the same way, when the Son of Man returns, it will be pretty obvious. Um, he compares it to the days of Noah and the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was pretty obvious in those days what was happening. There's a flood and everybody's dying. Uh, there is fire and brimstone falling from the sky. So nobody had to tell them what the signs were because it was so clearly obvious what was happening. And then he um, gives a warning about uh, having hearts that are in love with this world. He says, first of all, remember Lot's wife, who even though she was rescued from the wrath that fell upon Sodom, her heart was so enamored by this world that she couldn't resist turning and looking long longingly at the Sodom that she was leaving. And she was turned to this pillar of salt. Jesus says, remember her. And he goes on to say, don't be one whose first instinct, when the Son of Man is revealed, don't be one whose first instinct, whose first love, is to come down from the roof and see what of your stuff you can grab before you're taken. Uh, don't be one who, uh, your first instinct is the things of this world. And um, you may be happy at the revealing of the Son of Man, but you're also sad to be leaving this world. So we took that and we fleshed that out a little bit and we saw how uh, uh, most, most everyone will prefer heaven over hell. 
But only the true believer prefers heaven over this life, over this earth here. And then Jesus finishes with this warning, um, again, to sort of drive home the point that this is not a vindictive Messiah that's saying, uh, all of my enemies are going to get it one day. Uh, you got it coming to you. Uh, but instead, he's, um, he finishes this with this warning that is to say to us, this is the same Messiah who is warning us of this eternal hell and damnation and wrath to come. He's the same one that is dying for us. He's the same one that is suffering for us and going to that place in our stead. So we finished up there, and last week I did make a, an error in what I said, and you may want to mark this down. It doesn't happen too often. Um, I've sort of made the, the uh, mention in passing that at the beginning of chapter 18, verse 1, was a new subject. See, you guys are gloating already. Um, there was a, a change in subject from the end of chapter 17 to the beginning of chapter 18. Uh, typically, when I prepare to, to preach a passage, I will spend a little bit of time looking ahead and um, just seeing what's next. Um, I guess I didn't do that well enough because that is not the case. This is the same subject continuing from the end of chapter 17 into the beginning of chapter 18. If you just read the first sentence of chapter 18, which is probably what I did last week, uh, it may seem as though this is flipped subjects and this is a new subject, but this is uh, not the case. So we're going to look at chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, and we're going to spend um, a, quite a bit of time looking once again at the end of chapter 17 and tying all this together for us this morning. So as we begin, um, I want to, uh, before we read through it, I want to uh, make a connection for us. And what is sometimes what I like to do, just sort of plant some seeds of thought for you to be contemplating, meditating upon, even as we read through the pa passage the first time. So what I want to direct your attention to is chapter 18, verse 1. And I want to read that to you right now. Uh, it says this, He told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. So clearly, the topic of the passage is going to be something centered around prayer and our call and our command to be people of prayer. But also there is this reason for this and not to lose heart so that you will be people of prayer and not lose heart. So I want, to, I want you to think just a moment about what lose heart means. Uh, what does Jesus mean by losing heart? Does he mean become discouraged, or does he mean something else? So be thinking about that. Be thinking about his command of prayer. And then, uh, secondly, I want to connect that together with the final verse of this section, uh, the end of verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So clearly we see already a connection back to the previous <coughs> passage. When the previous passage focused on the return of the Son of Man, the revealing of the Son of Man, uh, we're still on that same topic now. So think in your mind right now of a connection between the return of the Son of Man, the revealing of the Son of Man, him uh, pondering out loud, so to speak, if he will find faith on the earth when he returns. Connect that together in your mind with the command to be people of prayer, pray without ceasing, so that you don't lose heart. And then in your mind sort of turn that over with the context of our passage last week. Our passage last week centered much upon um, the believer, the follower of Jesus Christ, not being one who is in love with this world, but instead who is anxiously awaiting the revealing of the Son of Man. Put all that together. Now let's read through the passage, um, beginning from verse, from verse 1 of chapter 18. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, 
though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Pause with me, and um, let's ask for God's help in discerning this passage. We pray, Father, for your presence and power and strength among us now. We ask, Lord, that your divine word, which will never pass away, uh, would be forefront in our thoughts. We pray for supernatural understanding at this time. We pray, Lord, that uh, the application of your words would be something that we could not possibly leave out from our lives from this point forward. And so we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Um, does somebody have some, some of the notes? I, uh, I could use a copy up here. Is there an extra copy? Yeah, right here. Thank you. Earlier this year, a man by the name of Tom Clavin released a book called uh, Dodge City, Wyatt Earp, Bat Masterson, and the story of the most wicked town in the American West. Who could not read a book with that title? Uh, the title itself has just got to, if you have any interest at all in uh, the American West and uh, that period in history, um, it's such a colorful time in history, and a book with that sort of title, you can't avoid reading that. So, so he tells the story of Dodge City, and you're probably familiar with Dodge City, Kansas. It truly, it was, the, at, at least at the time, it was the wickedest city that you could imagine. It was like a, it was like Sodom and Gomorrah in Kansas. And um, the story revolves around, of course, Wyatt Earp, Bat Masterson, two of the most famous lawmen of, of American history. Um, and some of the adventures that they go through and the facts of their life and everything. Terribly interesting story. But as he tells the story of, of these two lawmen, he can't help but tell their story. As he tells their story, he can't help but also tell the story of a lot of other characters, such as, of course, Doc Holliday, um, uh, Bill Tillman, um, a lot of those other... You've seen all the movies, so you've seen... You're familiar, at least, with the names of those characters. But also, in telling their story, he can't help but also weave into the story... Um, a lot of lesser-known characters that were, quite frankly, just as interesting, like um, Happy Jack or uh, uh, Black Jack Bill, uh, Dynamite Sam, uh, Shotgun Collins. Uh, if, 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 you, if you were in the Old West, you had to have a nickname. And that, you know, your nickname had to be something attached to, you know, maybe what you like to do, like Black Jack Bill or something you were... Uh, uh, maybe your, your weapon of choice, Shotgun Collins or something like that. So all these really interesting characters are woven into the story. And one of them that we come across is a character by the name of Mysterious Dave. Now, everybody's just dying to know now how Mysterious Dave came by his handle, right? So if you would indulge me just for a few minutes to read a couple pages from, uh, from Dodge City, you may find this quite interesting. The... Um, the man's name was David Allen Mather. Um, he was born in 1851, he says. He goes on to say that he was a descendant of Cotton Mather, which means something to us, but he goes on to say that that probably did not mean a darn thing on the frontier. Um, so he kind of picks up with his history when he says uh, around 1878, he was a buffalo hunter. In 1878, he finds his way to Dodge City. Somewhere along the way, Dave acquired his nickname of Mysterious Dave. His personality was so taciturn 
or uh, uncommunicative, um, a, a man of few words. His personality was so taciturn that he made Wyatt Earp seem giddy. Wyatt Earp, if, um, if you've seen the movies, he was not a man of many words, right? So it may, he made Wyatt Earp seem giddy. He rarely spoke, and even those who considered themselves friends could not discern what he was thinking. There was rarely an expression on his face. The curling of his thin lips was a dramatic outburst. Whatever went on in Dave Mather's head was a perpetual mystery. One evening, the last place Bill Tillman, Bat Masterson's deputy, expected to find him, was at a revival meeting. But that is what happened at around 9 o'clock. A preacher who had been dubbed Salvation Sam, again, you had to have a nickname in the Old West, a preacher whose name he had been dubbed Salvation Sam had come to Dodge City with a few male and female followers and had been given permission by Luke Short to hold a soul-saving service at the Red Dog Saloon, which uh, Luke was a silent partner in. So Tillman was alone in the Ford County Sheriff's Office when he heard shots fired. He hurried down the street, having been told that whatever was going on, it was happening inside the Red Dog Saloon. Entering the saloon, Tillman saw Salvation Sam and his followers cowering behind a lectern that stood for, before several rows of wooden benches. Mysterious Dave stood to the side, a gun in one hand. Tillman did not know which way this situation was going to go, but his future suddenly got a lot shorter when Mather turned the gun on him. As usual, whatever was on the gunman's mind could not be gleaned. Hoping that these were not the last words that he would utter, Tillman calmly said, Dave, I need you to give me your gun. No response. Mysterious Dave just stared at him. In case the man was indeed mad, Tillman kept his voice low and calm as he walked forward, assuring Mysterious Dave that he would not hurt him, and that he just wanted the gun so that you don't hurt anybody else either. He could hear the preacher and his followers panting. Finally, he stood up, stood up before Mysterious Dave and extended his hand, and after a few more moments of quiet, the gun was relinquished. The others in the saloon stood up and spread out, still eyeing the unarmed Mysterious Dave fearfully. The deputy sheriff looked them over. No one appeared in injured. He asked Salvation Sam to accompany him to the sheriff's office to swear out a complaint against Mysterious Dave, but the preacher just pointed to the ceiling and said, Charges against this sinner have been made in heaven. God will punish him as he sees fit. Good enough. Now to get Mysterious Dave out of the saloon so he, he could go back to being a church for one night at least. Once they were out on the street, <laughs> Mysterious Dave finally spoke. Hypocrites! Wondering if there was more, Tillman waited patiently. And what, and what for him was the equivalent of a Shakespearean soliloquy, Mysterious Dave continued, The preacher asked them to come forward and confess their sins. And after they did, the preacher said they could go straight to heaven. I figured to help them take advantage of that opportunity right away before they go on sinning and ruining things. But they didn't really want to go, so they're just a bunch of hypocrites. <laughs> Tillman chewed on that a while as he escorted him to the bridge that crossed the Arkansas River. Handing back the gun, he told Mysterious Dave, it's best you stay out of Dodge City for a while. I read that story not only because it's a good story, but I read that because there's something to be gleaned from the theology of Mysterious Dave, isn't it? Mysterious Dave had a lot of things wrong. Uh, Mysterious Dave, uh, for example, he had a completely faulty idea of confessing one's sins and being forgiven and assured of salvation, um, he thought that that meant, well, why wait around? Why not just pull out the six-shooter and we'll all just go right now? And he was quite confused and angry when 
they didn't seem to agree with his assessment of forgiveness. Um, so he had a lot of things wrong with his theology, but he had one thing right, didn't he? What he had right was that these promises of forever and these promises of eternity, if nothing else, they should change how one not only lives, but how one dies. Now that's not to say that when we might find ourselves looking at the business end of a six-shooter, that we're just ready to go without fear or trembling. But that is to say that if we live and die just like those who have no hope, then this promise of eternity, this promise of the return of the Son of Man or the resurrection, whichever may be the case for us that comes first, holds something of an emptiness, doesn't it? Mysterious Dave could at least see through that and see that these people who supposedly had something that nobody else in Dodge City had should have faced their own death a little bit differently than they did, or at least the possibility of their own death. That's what this passage is all about at the end of the day. This passage is all about the fact that eternity, the promise of the return, the revealing of the Son of Man, the promise of an eternity with Messiah should change not only how we live, but how we die as well. It should change everything, indeed, about our life. And to our disgrace, oftentimes it seemingly does not change nearly as much as one would expect that it does change. I'm reading a book now by uh, Paul David Tripp called Forever. Uh, why you can't live without it. And the title there says it all. It's a book that really just fleshes out what I just said. The fact that eternity should change everything about how we live and how we face death. I just want to read a little bit from the beginning of the book. The very beginning, as uh, Paul David Tripp is just going to spend a little bit of time defining the problem. He says this, Why is it so hard for us to be satisfied? Why do so many of our marriages struggle over the long run? Why do we have such a hard time getting along with family and friends? Why do we carry around so much debt? Why do we stand in front of a full closet and say we have nothing to wear? Why do we look into fully stocked refrigerators and say we have nothing to eat? Why do so many of us consistently spend more than we earn? Why do we struggle with so much envy? Why does our culture tend to be overdrugged and oversexed? Why do we spend so much on making sure that we are incessantly entertained? Why do our trials paralyze us more than they should? Why do people disappoint us so easily? Why does life in the here and now never seem to deliver what we hoped it would deliver? It goes on from there, but you kind of get the idea. The point is, if we as people who are made for eternity, who are awaiting the revealing of the Son of Man, have an eternity such as the Bible speaks to us about, then why do we struggle with the same issues that the rest of the world struggles with, and oftentimes to the same degree that the rest of the world struggles with them? And why do we face the end of our lives so often in ways that are hard to differentiate with how the rest of the world may face the end of their lives? Jesus addresses this 
And he addresses it in the first sentence of the passage and in the last sentence of the passage. And between those two sentences, he sandwiches in there a parable. And so our first task this morning would be to take a look at that parable, uh, peel the parable apart and see what that's saying to us, and then apply this to what Jesus is saying. Um, so we're going to do that. Uh, we're going to begin doing that just now. Um, from verse 1, once again, and he told them the parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. So right away we know the point is coming. Here's the point. Here's the application. The application is to be people of prayer. Not only to be people of prayer, but to be people of encouraged prayer as opposed to discouraged prayer, we could say. Always pray, not lose heart. Now verse 2, here comes the parable. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. We could spend a little bit of time and take that apart and see in the phraseology there that Jesus is describing the most wicked of people. This isn't just a low life. Jesus is using a couple phrases that would have been um, that would have been uh, phrases that would have alerted his leader or his listeners, sorry, his listeners to the fact that this is not just a bad person. This is the most wicked of people. Here is a person whose um, job it is to discern the law of God and apply the law of God to God's people. And he himself says, uh, a little bit later in the passage, he himself will say, I don't fear God. I have no fear of God. But not only does he have no fear of God, he also doesn't respect man. Now that, that's a, a little bit of a difficult phrase to translate. The word there, uh, respect, um, literally means shame. In other words, he has no shame. This was an honor-shame culture. And we're familiar, to some extent, to honor-shame cultures. If we think back to our history, we used to be sort of a remnant of an honor-shame culture. There's many cultures today, uh, Far Eastern cultures, Middle Eastern cultures, that are honor-shame cultures. Um, and we can even glean from our history, if you think of the uh, 18th century, the 19th century, if you think of uh, you know, maybe the pinnacle of that was the antebellum South. This idea of honor-shame was how society worked. Uh, people were stirred to good things by appealing to their sense of honor. And people were averted from bad things by appealing to their sense of shame. Those two things worked together in a, an enormously strong way to encourage people as a whole to encourage society to a societal goodness and an avoiding of societal badness, if you put that in a super generic sort of way. People were raised in cultures in which a um, high degree of esteem was placed on honor, and they would eschew shame uh, greatly. The, the worst thing that could happen would be to be shamed. We live in a generation in which this... This way of thinking is quickly passing away. Um, oftentimes you can, I think, look around at what's going on around us and, and wonder, is there any concept of shame remaining? But sometimes in our past, this was a strong factor. In the Middle East, it's still a strong factor. In other cultures in the world, it's still a strong factor that in order to encourage right behavior and discourage wrong behavior in a society, one appeals to the sense of honor and to the sense of shame. So what this literally means is that this person is unable to be shamed. He, you may have heard the phrase when 
particularly when you were a kid. Maybe your mother said, um, do you have no shame? Or shame on you, right? That meant something to some previous generations. But in this culture, it meant a great deal. Shame on you. And it's hard to even, I think, really articulate it to the 21st century American culture, this idea of shame on you. This was a man who could not experience shame. He had no, uh, he gave no uh, weight to shame. He was not shamed by his behavior. Uh, he was not shamed by what other people thought of him. So in other words, he could care less what people thought of him and he could care less what God thought of him. Jesus is describing an extraordinarily wicked person. And his job, again, is to be the discerner and the applier of God's law to God's people. So in this day, when there was a dispute, he went before the judge and the judge heard the case and he would, he would decide what was to be done. You can imagine if you were a person living in this area and you had a dispute with your neighbor and you were in the right, your neighbor was in the wrong, and you go and you see this guy and you're like, no, that's, that's the worst person possible to hear my case. Because he, he could care less about God. He could care less about what his neighbors think of him. He could care less about any of that. So this is, would be an extraordinarily poor person to be a judge. So here's this judge. He fears God. or He doesn't fear God. He doesn't respect man. But then the next uh, sentence, we see that there was also a widow. Now, as soon as we see that word widow, some lights go on. And we automatically begin thinking uh, in this culture of a person who was completely resourceless, uh, completely without influence, uh, helpless, um, utterly dependent is, is the picture that we have in our mind. A widow, so she's lost her husband. Uh, in these days, to go to court, the, the courts were a male place. And so to argue your case or have your case heard, that's where the men went to do that. Um, and so to be a widow who... Obviously, since she's the one who's going to court, not only has she lost her husband, but she also has no other man in her life because if she did, that would be the person that went to court to plead her case for her. She doesn't have a son. She doesn't have a, a, a brother-in-law. She doesn't have an uncle. She doesn't have a father. She has no man figure in her life to go and plead her case for her. So she has to do what a man should be doing for her in this culture. Um, so she goes here into this male-dominated world, and then there's the worst judge possible. Not only is she the most resourceless and um, uh, influence-less person, but she also goes into the court of the most wicked judge possible. So she goes, uh, and she's been wrong because uh, she is coming to ask for justice. So we don't know if maybe... Her husband that has passed away left her a little bit of property, but somebody took that from her somehow, um, and they took it wrongfully. Uh, maybe she's got some squatters on her fields that she owns, and they won't pay rent, or whatever the case may be. She's being wronged. And the wrong is so much so that she can't just go and have the case heard, and he doesn't decide favorably for her, but he decides unfavorably, and so she says, you know, case arise, sirrah, I tried. That's just going with life. She can't do that. So whatever the wrong is, it's something that she cannot live with. Why? Because she must keep 
going back. She has no other option but to keep on going before this judge. So she kept coming to him, saying, Give me justice. Vindicate me against my adversary. So for a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man. Now there is... Um, we understand this is a parable, this is a fictitious situation, but there's a remarkable admission for the judge himself to say, I have no concern for God, nor, nor any concern for people, but I am getting tired of seeing this same person. So, she keeps because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, I will vindicate her, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. There's a couple of uh, good translations there, beat me down literally, um, to punch him in the eye and give him a black eye. So she, I mean, she's, he feels so badgered by her that he just feels like she's beating him down. We, we know people, you know, they want something. I mean, they just will just beat you down. She is just literally, she's there every day. He comes, maybe he shows up to hear his cases. There she is every day. Well, every day as the people are coming in to have their case heard, here she, here she is. He knows he's going to see her and he's, and he's just being beaten down by this. And he knows by now that she's not going to stop by her continual coming. That could have been translated her eternal coming. Her forever coming. She will never, ever, ever stop. So he says, I'll give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Then verse 8, and the Lord said, I'm sorry, verse 6, then the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, what the wicked judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. So the point here is not a comparison. Jesus isn't comparing um, the unrighteous judge to God. He's contrasting. Um, oftentimes, Scripture will, will do that. It'll uh, sometimes even compare God and Jesus to uh Less what we would consider to be less than favorable. That Jesus is compared to a thief. Um, my coming will be like a thief in the night, right? And Jesus isn't saying I'm I'm like a thief and I'm coming to steal what's not mine. He's saying, in the way that I come, it's like the surprise of a thief, right? Similar sort of thing here is Jesus isn't saying that the wickedness of this judge can be compared to the character of God. He's saying that in this way. God is not compared to the unrighteous judge. He's contrasted against the unrighteous judge. If such a person as this will eventually hear the plea and eventually grant justice, how much more so will God's people be heard by God and will he hear their prayer and will he answer? So um, he's contrasting the honor of God. He's contrasting... Uh, the reception of God for his people against the, the non-reception of the wicked judge. So the, um, the point is not that, that in order to get God to answer our prayer, we've just got to keep on praying and don't stop. Don't stop until God answers you. You may have heard that. The point is not you've got to be so persistent that God eventually answers your prayer. The point is to say, look how opposite our father is we can see this in the passage but Luke's already told us this if you think back to think back to chapter 12 verse 34 i think it is it's our father's good pleasure 
to give us the kingdom. We don't come before a God who unwillingly gives good things to us. We come before a God who is the polar opposite of such a wicked judge who abundantly wants to heap upon us all good things. It is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. So we see that that application, that contrast here. Um, But of course, we then must ask the question, well, if God is so willing to grant good things to his people, if it is his good pleasure to grant us good things, then why would he not just answer prayer right away? Or even why do we need to pray it? Why don't he just sort of know what good things are and go ahead and give them to us? Or if, even if not that, then just we just ask one time. Boom, there's the good thing. And I think there's a lot of ways to answer that. The passage doesn't really answer that, but um, I think there's a lot of ways to answer. Why is it that God, His answers to prayer often seem to not be the first or second or third or sometimes the 50th or 100th time? Why is that? I think we can see an answer to that if we think this through. Let me, quit, let me just quote real quickly from that same book that we looked at earlier, Forever by Paul Tripp. He says this, as we're waiting for, for this forever, this promise that's promised to us, we're not just marking time. He says, from an eternal perspective, waiting, and here it is, waiting is about becoming. He says, biblical waiting on God is not the same as waiting on the bus to show up or waiting on the answer of prayer to come, come through or waiting for somebody to do something for you. Biblical waiting is more about becoming than it is passing time. Biblical waiting isn't about, okay, this is going to happen at this point in the future. Now I've got to wait for that point to become the present and then it's going to happen. Biblical waiting is all about becoming something. And then he takes that and he refers to Isaiah 61. Put this in your notes here. Isaiah 61, verse 3. He says, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. So Isaiah is comparing a faint spirit. Think of uh, faint prayers or uh, weak prayers. That's not the garment of praise. But instead, Isaiah says, they may be called, speaking of us, they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that the Lord may be glorified. Here's what Isaiah is doing. He's comparing those who wait upon the Lord to oaks of righteousness. Now, what's true about an oak tree? Starts as this little acorn, goes in the ground. Maybe a couple of decades later, it's a small tree. Decades later, it's a, you fill in the blank, a blank oak. Solid, mighty. I mean, we think of oak trees. You don't think of a weak little tree. You don't think of a tree that could be easily torn down. You think of an oak tree, you think of a mighty tree. You think of a powerful tree that can withstand storms and wind. You think of a tree that's here to last. But it took a long time to get there. Uh, Tripp goes on to say, isn't it funny how God never compares us to mushrooms? You will be like a mighty mushroom. What's true about a mushroom? You have mushrooms in your yard? Then, Then you know that it's like they're not there. And the next morning they are there. They, they come up literally like overnight. And how do you get rid of them? You just, and they're gone. Flick them. They're gone. Because they have 
no root. They spring up overnight and they have no longevity. They have no ability not only, not only to withstand wind in a storm, but you can't even walk past them and they'll fall over. God never compares us to the righteousness of a mighty mushroom. Instead, he says, wait upon the Lord that you might be a mighty oak of righteousness. Waiting upon the Lord is more about becoming that mighty oak than it is about passing some time until God decides to do something in your life. Let me just read real, real briefly to us from a book I read this week called um, Power Through Prayer by E.B. Bounds. E.B. Bounds was uh, a minister. He died in the uh, 1913, something like that. So he was from several generations ago. He, he wrote a lot about prayer. He wrote a little book. You might want to look into it. It's called Power Through Prayer. It's a quick little 120-page little read. But in this, he says some powerful things about prayer. Here's one of the things that he says. He says, Much with God alone is the secret of knowing Him and influence with Him. He yields to the persistency of a faith that knows Him. Now you may want to wrestle with that for a little bit. He yields to the persistency of a faith that knows Him. He bestows His richest gifts upon those who declare their desire for and appreciation of those gifts by the constancy as well as the earnestness of their importunity. Here's what he said in some eloquent, more eloquent words than mine. He said, the power of prayer has to do with knowing God. And how do we know God aside from spending long amounts of time with Him, i.e. in prayer? So his point is, is that the earnestness and the constancy that he says of spending copious amounts of time with God in prayer, that is all about the becoming that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 61, becoming this person of mighty oak type of righteousness. Take all of that and we sort of bundle that together and now let's, let's keep on going. I want to unpack the passage just a little bit further. Okay, I want to dig down just a little bit to another, another level. Um, in order to do this, Indulge us just for a little bit to look back on last week's passage. And I want to go back to last week. And I want to pick up on a couple of things that we didn't talk about last week. And I want to see how those things feed into what Jesus now says about the constancy of prayer. Um, look back up to chapter 17, verse 25. Verse 25 is when Jesus refocuses our attention upon the suffering Messiah, the suffering that is to come. So he says, but first, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be what? Rejected by this generation. So this rejection of the Messiah is going to occur. In fact, it already has occurred. It's been occurring since the days of Noah because Jesus goes on to say so. He goes on to give the examples of how he has been rejected. Um, let's just look at the plain language that's used. Jesus must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation just as it was in the days of Noah. So Jesus was rejected in the days of Noah just as it was, he'll say a little bit later, likewise in the days of Lot. 
The Messiah was rejected in the days of Noah. The Messiah will be, was rejected in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. But look, here's the interesting part. Look at how Jesus describes his rejection. The Son of Man will be rejected by this generation just as it was in the days of Noah. So it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were doing what? Eating and drinking. Marrying. Being given in marriage. In other words, they were just going about ordinary life. Now let's go on a little bit further. And then he, then he comes to the next example. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot. So how were they rejecting God's Messiah in the days of Lot? We know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know the sins that were taking place there because the Bible describes them to us. The days of Noah, the Bible doesn't really describe the specific sins that God was pouring out His wrath upon. Genesis uh, 6-9 says that God looked upon the earth and the, the hearts of, of all people were just evil. But it doesn't describe what their evil deeds were. Not so with Sodom. Sodom were, were given information about what specific sins they were being judged for as God poured out the fire and uh, wrath upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And what was that sin specifically? Uh, previous generations in our culture referred to it as, even by the same name, sodomy. You know what sodomy means? That, go, that harkens back to the days in which homosexual behavior was illegal in most states. And it was called sodomy. Why? Because that's what the people wanted to do to the male angels who came to deliver Lot and his family. But isn't it interesting that when Jesus says the Son of Man is going to be rejected by this generation just like he was rejected at Sodom because they preferred homosexual behavior over the Messiah. The Son of Man will be rejected in this generation just like he was rejected by the Sodomites because they preferred fornication and perversity and they chose that over the Messiah. It's not what Jesus says. Jesus says he will be rejected in this generation, just like in that generation, because in that generation, here's what they did. Ate, drank, bought, sold, planted, and built. In other words, Jesus is saying his rejection didn't come so much from specific perversions or specific sins as it did through Ordinary life. Ordinary life was the greatest enemy for those in the days of Noah and those in the days of Sodom. It was the greatest enemy to salvation. It wasn't that they were so tempted by these perverse sins and evils that they chose those over God. It was that ordinary life entered into their thoughts and consumed them to such a degree that they chose that over any thoughts of God or any following of God in their lives. Now, if, that, if, if Jesus hasn't made his point well enough, he goes on to specifically say it now. He says, remember Lot's wife. What happened to Lot's wife? Lot's wife was so enamored by her life in Sodom that she couldn't find herself leaving that without longingly looking back and reminiscing, if you will, about what it was that she was leaving. So here's the point that I think that Jesus is making. And I put this here in your notes. That the greatest 
threat to godliness is not persecution, but the ordinary things of life. That comes from John Piper. The greatest threat to godliness is not persecution. The greatest threat to godliness is not the atheist that you may know at work. The greatest threat to godliness is not that uh, maybe one day churches can't openly meet, true churches can't openly meet in our culture, or uh, that possibly uh, the ways in which we live out our faith in our, in our culture will be curtailed. That's not the greatest threat to your faith. The greatest threat to your faith is ordinary life. The greatest threat to your faith is forgetting God in the uh, going to the grocery store and uh, making your dentist appointment and picking up the kids and making sure their homework is done and making sure the laundry is done and going over here and doing that and going over there and doing that and taking care of this and this and this and by the end of all that, you've forgotten God. That's how the rejection of the Messiah comes about. Now, the perversity that we saw in Sodom and uh, the evil hearts that we saw in Genesis 6 before the flood, those are the results, of course, of forgetting God. But that, that's not how it begins. It all begins with just simply forgetting Him in the busyness of life, in the ordinariness of life. The greatest threat to godliness is not persecution, but instead the ordinary things of life. Here's another thing I put in your notes. The battle in the life of faith is to live in the temporal while avoiding being desensitized to the eternal. Do you find that hard to do? Do you find it hard to live here in the temporal while engaging everything in this life that is so busy and so full and oftentimes so hectic with urgent things to do, not so urgent things to do, important things to do, not so important things to do, uh, demands on every everywhere you look. Do you find it difficult to live in the midst of that and remain sensitive to the eternal? Jesus is saying to us, that is the enemy to your faith. The enemy to your faith is living your life without a view to God, living your life and forgetting God in the everyday things of your life. Or, let me put this another way, living your life and forgetting that Jesus is coming back. And forgetting that you were made for eternity. Forgetting that the Son of Man will be revealed. There is a resurrection. You're going to meet Him. You'll probably meet Him sooner than you're thinking. All of us tend to think that that meeting with Jesus is further away than it's really going to be for most of us. The real enemy to faith is not just outright denying God, but losing track of Him. Losing the ability to maintain the eternal in our perspective, to maintain the eternal in our focus, and instead just um, going about ordinary life, like the Sodomites, eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building, going about normal life. Oftentimes, I find that I can think of, of God and focus in His Word and pray in the mornings. And then the next time I think about Him is the next morning. It's like, where, where, there was so much that came at me that I totally didn't think about God for the last 18 hours. That is the greatest enemy 
to our faith. So Jesus says, as life happens, as life happened for those in the days of Noah, as life happened for those in the days of Sodom, as life happens for you and I, the danger is that we forget God in our life and our hearts grow cold to him. Now look back, remember I asked you to think about what do you think Jesus meant by losing heart? Do you think that he just meant don't be discouraged because you pray for things and you don't get them? <laughs> that is true. I mean, when we pray for things and we don't see that result, we shouldn't get discouraged. And it is biblical, sound advice to say to us, don't lose heart over that. But I think that Jesus wasn't so much talking about don't be discouraged as he was saying, don't grow cold to God in your heart. Don't let the ordinariness of life, the busyness of life, cause your heart to grow cold towards him. Looking at your the parallel to this, to Luke 18, 17 and 18, is Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, here's how it's put to us there. Uh, many in the end times, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. And what sort of love is he talking about there? Love towards one another or love towards God? I don't know. He's not specific there. But it seems likely to me that he's saying that love towards God will grow cold as all these other things are consuming us. So I see that as Jesus' warning here. Uh, as Jesus' warning not to forget God. This leads him into chapter 18 as he's going to tell this parable. And, and Luke tells us right up front what the point of the parable is. The point of the parable is that we would always pray and not lose heart. And as we began by making a connection with that, from that to the end of the passage where Jesus sort of wonders out loud. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So let's take a look at those and let's see in here how Jesus is giving us what we need to do battle against such a danger. The danger is forgetting God in our lives, not so much ceasing to love God or embracing evil, but just forgetting Him, losing the sight of the eternal. So, Je so Jesus says, He wonders out loud, when I return, will I find faith? And He begins by saying, always pray. Those are the, the weapons that He's going to give to us to keep our hearts focused on the eternal. Always pray and don't lose heart. And I think specifically Jesus is saying not just pray, but pray eschatologically. Pray uh, with eternity in mind. Pray for the revealing of the Son of Man. Pray for the resurrection. Pray for, for, for Jesus to come for us. Pray with an eternity in mind. Pray specifically towards that goal. Let your prayers be consumed with thoughts of the eternal and that will enable us to do battle against this forgetting of God in our lives. And so then the wondering that Jesus is doing at the end, it's like he's pondering. When I return, will I find people who are praying like that? Will I find people who are believing like that? Will I find people whose hearts are still focused on the eternal? Or will I find people that when they see me want to run inside and grab their stuff? Or will I find people that, that when they see me... Um, there's a twinge of gladness, but then there's also a twinge of remorse because this life, which they love so much, is now over. What kind of people will I find? So he says to do battle against that, he gives us the, the, um, the armor of prayer. 
I made a connection against this um, to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Take a look at this and see if you think this is a valid connection. In 1 Peter 4, verse 7, Peter says this, The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. In other words, as the days continue on, <coughs> don't lose the sober-mindedness of focusing on God the sober-mindedness, the self-control of maintaining a focus of God and a focus of eternity in your life. Don't lose that. Why not? Because that will hinder your prayers. He says, for the sake of your prayers. So, losing sight of eternity, living our lives as Christians who have no eternal focus. Remember the people in the Red Dog Saloon? Six-gun comes out. Let's go meet God right now. No. No. Lost sight of eternity, had no sight of eternity right there. In order to not do that, why? Because the result of that is you can't pray. Your prayers are hindered. Would that not also work in reverse? Could we not say in order to not lose the eternal focus in our lives, pray? Because when we lose that eternal focus, we will stop praying. So in other words, pray so that we don't lose it. You see how it's going to work in the reverse? Jesus says so much here. He says, well, you ought to be people that pray and not lose heart because I'm coming back. And when I come back, will I find people who are praying and believing like that? Did you notice how verse 1 and verse 8 are like a circular argument? Prayerlessness is the greatest sign of a weak faith. On the other hand, a weak faith is the greatest cause of prayerlessness. Do you know that if your faith is weak, you won't pray? If you don't pray, your faith will become weak. But if your faith is weak, you won't pray. It works in a circle. Prayerlessness gives rise to weak faith. Weak faith will result in prayerlessness. Prayerlessness gives rise to weak faith. Weak faith will result in prayerlessness and also works in the reverse as well. So Jesus' word to us here is pray, 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 specifically pray eschatologically, pray with eternity in mind. Not only does he say that, but he also gives us some extra motivation to pray. And the motivation is the parable. Remember the wicked judge, the widow? Here's your motivation to pray. Two things in that motivation to pray come to us in crystal clear clarity. Number one, pray, 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 because your father is not this judge. You are not praying before a wicked judge. You're not going before someone who resents you. You're going before the father of light who sent his son to die on your behalf who takes great pleasure in heaping his love upon you, who takes great pleasure in making you an heir to his kingdom. You are not praying to the wicked judge because your father is not this wicked judge. Motivation number one. Motivation number two, pray, 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 because you're not the widow. Think about this. The widow is the ultimate picture of a helpless person with no resources and no influence. 
the fact that a woman was even coming before the judge automatically meant, even if it was a just judge, it automatically meant that she was a person destitute of influence. She had little ability to influence anyone in her culture. Women in this culture were respected, but they had no power. They had no influence. Jesus is painting for us here the picture of a person with no influence. And Jesus is saying to us, you're not that widow. Look at his words. He says, does not God give justice to who? Who does God give justice to? It's right there in the passage. His elect. Now that word should hit you like a ton of bricks because that is a charged word. You, you can't come across that word in Scripture without feeling something, right? Uh, his elect. That whole idea is just freighted with incredible richness of meaning. Think of Ephesians chapter 1 where the first half of that chapter is describing what God has done for His elect before the foundation of the world. You are His. You are special. You are incredibly special. God chose you. God has placed His love upon you. He has died for you. He cares for you. He commands you to keep your cares and concerns upon Him because He cares for you. You are not the widow. You are heir to His inheritance. So those are the two motivations. You're not going before the judge and you're not the widow. You are His elect. Which, by the way, what do His elect do? What do His elect do? Pray out Day and night. I think that's more of a description of who the elect are than a, a, a command in that context. You are His elect, who, by the way, here's what elect people do, they cry out to God day and night. They pray. They are the ones that when the Son of Man returns, He will find them with faith. He will find them believing and He will find them praying and He will find them looking for Him and waiting for Him. So those are the extra motivations to pray. And again, just to, just to make note here, prayerlessness is the greatest sign of a weak faith and a weak faith is the greatest cause of prayerlessness. I put it another way in your notes here. Those who don't believe will not pray. Those who don't pray will not continue believing. If you want to stop believing in God, Stop praying. And you will stop believing. If you want to strengthen your belief in God, pray. There is a circular logic there that works in, in a way far more reliable than we can even understand. If you don't believe, you won't pray. If you don't pray, you will stop believing. Close all this with an illustration that I'm going to steal from John Popper. And it's an illustration that tries to encapsulate what Jesus is saying to us here in this passage. It's the illustration of uh, pitching your mind that you are in this tiny little uninsulated shack in the middle of Siberia in the winter. So imagine 40, 40 degrees below zero. You are going to die unless you stay warm. So in this little shack, you have a stove. And you have a coal stove, a coal burning stove, and you have plenty of coal. 
He says to us that the illustration is this. Um, the stove is our faith. And the coal that fires the stove is the grace that God gives to us. Grace that He gives to us through His Word. Grace that He gives to us through His church. Uh, the grace that He gives to us. Unlimited supply of coal. So that stove will keep you warm as long as it is fed with the grace of God. So then the third element to the, to the parable is that prayer is the shovel that shovels the coal in the stove. So oftentimes, believers in, in Jesus Christ want to say, it's nice and warm in here, got it pretty toasty. I don't think I need this shovel anymore. I'm going to set the shovel aside. And the point is, you set the shovel aside, the stove doesn't go out like that. You're not dead in 10 minutes. But if you set the shovel aside and don't pick it up, you will die. It'll take some time. You will die. Prayer is the shovel that feeds our faith with the grace of God that will sustain us through the Siberian winter. enjoyed this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The purpose of the Garden Fellowship Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. We hope you were blessed by this message. You can learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash garden fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org.